Make-believe president and venal houseplant Joe Biden has been making some bizarre, dishonest, and wildly demagogic statements lately, giving hope to his supporters that he may still be sentient, or at least semi-conscious. For instance, Biden recently spoke of state attempts to shore up election security by requiring voters to show identification at the polls. And he said, quote, and this is an actual quote, we're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole, unquote. The word hyperbole, of course, is derived from the Greek, Greek words hyper, meaning absolutely idiotic, and bully, meaning comparisons to the Civil War. The Civil War, of course, was a four-year 19th century cataclysm during which hundreds of thousands of Americans died trying to find their driver's licenses so they could vote. The New York Times, a former newspaper, says the term, this is not hyperbole, is not bizarre and dishonest demagoguery, but is rather just one example of what they call Bidenisms, a charming new word meaning bizarre and dishonest demagoguery made to sound charming by the New York Times. According to the Times, Bidenisms include such phrases as, here's the deal, which means what I'm about to say to you is a steaming pile of complete horse manure. Look, folks, which means here's the deal. I'm serious, which means look, folks. Not a joke, which means what I just said to you was a steaming pile of complete horse manure. And this is not hyperbole, which means not a joke. Other adorable Bidenisms include, where am I? Who am I? Can someone take me back to the basement, please? And I know you already told me where I am, but where am I? Times White House correspondent and Biden spokeswoman Maggie Mendacious says Biden's trademark manner of speaking is part of his folksy, down-to-earth working man charm, rather than, say, a vomitous babble of deceptions and irrelevance meant to distract from his bizarre and dishonest demagoguery. In a video put out by the New York Times in the hope some idiot would believe it, Miss Mendacious says, quote, Right-wingers insist on treating the president as if he's lying through his teeth in order to stir up hatred between one set of Americans and another. But the left absolutely loves the guy because he's lying through his teeth in order to stir up hatred between one set of Americans and another. It's all such a relief after Donald Trump, who was really the greatest threat to this nation since the Civil War, and that's not hyperbole, unquote. The word hyperbole, of course, is derived from the Greek words hyper, meaning thoroughly corrupt, and bully, meaning New York Times White House correspondent. Polls show a large majority of Americans look forward to hearing more Bidenisms or any other signs that Biden is still alive and Kamala Harris is not yet the president, please God. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. Hooray, hurrah, the vast right-wing conspiracy known as Clavenon continues probing its way into the depths and minds of the depths of the minds of whatever is happening somewhere. I forgot what I was talking about. Go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show because obviously I'm falling apart. So you have to subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star review. It is tremendously helpful. Uh, also go on the, my personal YouTube channel, Andrew Clavin's YouTube channel, uh, and ring that, press that little bell, uh, and someone, so, somewhere, someone you don't know will die and you'll receive a million dollars. 
Uh, that's not going to happen. But press it anyway, and something will, probably will happen. Who knows? And leave a comment. And if the comment is sufficiently ignorant, racist, hateful, we will include it on the show because it'll fit seamlessly into the rest of the program. Today's comment is from Trayvon Abraham, uh, who says, I can't call Clavin my fam- favorite homeless man now uh, because I now actually have a home, though I remain morally homeless. So I think you can still call me that if you want to. All right, you've heard me talk about my Helix mattress and how much I love lying awake on it. Helix has now launched a new company called Allform, and they are making premium, customizable sofas and chairs that are shipped right to your door. What makes an Allform sofa really cool? Well, for starters, it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials. And it's a fraction of the cost that you would pay at traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, color, size, and shape of your sofa to make sure it's perfect for you and your home. All form sofas are also delivered directly to your home with fast, free shipping. And if getting a sofa without trying it in the store sounds a little risky, you don't need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. You don't love it. They'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Clavin. That is allform.com slash Clavin, which is spelled K-L-A. Glad he sung it. So the other evening in my new home, or actually near my new home, I was talking to the very uh, talented writer and journalist Mark Hemingway. Uh, You've probably read his stuff on Real Clear Investigations. He brags on his Twitter feed that he is the husband of Molly Hemingway, uh, as anyone would brag if they were lucky enough to be the husband of the delightful Molly Hemingway. But Mark made a comment to me that I, I had never thought of before, but the minute he said it, it made perfect sense, which was that... If you watch the show Jeopardy and you look at the people who are on Jeopardy and how many people win and the people who win Jeopardy, an enormous number of them, a preponderance of them, are from what they call the DMV, D.C., Maryland and Virginia. They're basically people who work in government or around government. In other words, in other words, what he was saying was pointing out is that the smartest people in the country are involved in running the country. And I've noticed this myself every time I've ever met somebody from the State Department. I've noticed this guy is brilliant. The people, it happens again and again. When you talk to people from the State Department, they are the best and the brightest. And the other thing I've noticed about people from the State Department is virtually everything they believe is untrue. And that some of the smartest people in the country say some of the dumbest things that anybody can say. And this is something I have noticed since I was a young person. When I was a kid, I remember watching a film. It's a it's a, a noir classic. It's a movie called Pick Up on South Street, and it's an anti-communist piece of propaganda. But it's a terrific movie in which a pickpocket, I think it's played by Richard Widmark, picks someone's pocket and ends up stealing a piece of microfilm that the communist spies are looking for. And ultimately, these murderous communist spies treat, uh, track this microfilm down and they find a woman played by Thelma Ritter, excellent old actress. And she plays a kind of sleazy paid police informant. And ultimately, the communist killer Richard Kiley, who later became famous as the man of La Mancha, um, he comes in and threatens her and she's dying. She's a dying woman. And she tells him why, even though she'll sell anything to anybody, she's not going to work with him. She's not going to give him the information he wants about where the microfilm is. And here's the scene. But even a fancy funeral ain't worth waiting for if I've got to do business with crumbs like you. 
And I know what you're after. What do you know? I know you commies are looking for some film that don't belong to you. You just talked yourself into an early grave. What else do you know? What do I know about commies? Nothing. I know one thing. I just don't like them. <laughs> I remember this scene really hit me in the heart because I already had begun to notice that ordinary people, people who were not hyper-educated, who were not intellectuals, who were not the smartest or the best and brightest people in the country, understood basic things like communism was bad in ways that the people on TV, the sophisticated people on TV, didn't always seem to get. They seemed to kind of outthink things. I mean, I remember this moment, one of the stupidest moments I've ever seen on television, when the sophisticated and highly intelligent comedian Stephen Colbert said this about socialism during the Trump administration. On Halloween, kids literally go door to door to get free candy from the neighbors because the kids don't have it. And the neighbors do. That, that's socialism. <laughs> that's socialism. If the kids are carrying guns, then it's socialism. Give me your candy. That's socialism. The thing is, it's amazing to me that ordinary people, like the woman being played in the movie by Thelma Ritter, actually did know that communism was bad when people in the State Department were saying things like, hmm, this is the wave of the future, or this is what everything has to become. Everything is going to move slowly or quickly, depending on whether the Democrats or Republicans are in power toward socialism. You know, I was talking last week about my days wandering around the country, which I did for years. I hoboed around the country and I met all kinds of people. And I was a coastal kid, a kid from a sophisticated show business family. And I suddenly realized when I met all these people, I was in every state except for South Dakota. For some reason, I never got to South Dakota. I've never seen Mount Rushmore. It's the only state of the union I, I haven't been in. But I met all these different kinds of people, from the lowest people, from actual homeless hobos uh, to people in business, all kinds of people that I talked to and met across the country. And I realized that the way the country was depicted was totally false. This was a turning point in my life as I was, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. This was a turning point in my life when I realized that ordinary people know stuff that smart people don't. And again and again, people would say to me, you know, I'm not an educated guy. I didn't finish college. I don't know as much as the experts, but, and then they would say something that was incredibly bright. You know, it is, I'm not an anti-intellectual. I, I am, I suppose, an intellectual. That is, I make my living thinking and writing and talking. So that makes me essentially an intellectual. And I think that's useful. You know, I read stuff and I distill stuff and I distill information and, and ideas for people. And I think that's a good thing. And I'm not against being an intellectual. What I am against is the sense that intellectuals are morally superior or superior in wisdom to ordinary people. The sense, I've played this clip maybe a hundred times, because to me it is at the heart of the darkness on the left. This is the clip of uh, Don Lemon and Rick Wilson and Wajahat Ali laughing at Trump supporters. Cut 23. Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane <laughs> next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an, an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience. Uh, you know, the, the, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump um, that, that wants to think that, that, that Donald Trump's a smart one. And they're y'all elitists are dumb. You, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling, even though my math and you're reading. Yeah, you're reading. 
you know, your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte. All those lines on the map. <laughs> Only the Melitas know where Ukraine is. Man, oh man, that's, that to me is what the intellectual world is like. So we have a country being run by the best and the brightest badly. We're in debt up to our eyes. We can't get out of debt. Nobody has the courage to take on the entitlement programs that need to be taken on. We hate each other. Everybody is at daggers drawn. Uh, the country goes into wars and doesn't win them and never comes out. 20 years later, we're still debating whether we should be in Afghanistan, a country that doesn't exist. The country is run badly. It's run badly by the smartest people in the country. Why? What is it about smart people that makes them like that, so arrogant and so stupid, right? A perfect example of the stupidity of smart people is the abortion question. You talk to abortion people who are in favor of abortion, and all the intellectuals, oh, they love the abortion. you got to have that abortion. you got to be able to kill your baby. You have a baby that you didn't want, you have sex, and you wind up with a baby you didn't want. you got to be able to kill that baby. And they start to come up with really elaborate, sophisticated, philosophical reasons why you can kill that baby, right? You know, it's like, well, he doesn't, he doesn't feel pain or he doesn't, he doesn't think, he can't make choices yet. He can't, and he's totally dependent on someone else. So he's essentially a parasite. It's like if you were hooked up to a violinist in a dialysis machine, this is the stuff they really say. And you stop and you think, yeah, ordinary people understand don't kill a baby. You know, un- ordinary people get that. A lot of ordinary people get it. A, a baby, the minute a baby is conceived, it is a new human being. It is a new human being. It's in a state of total dependency as you and I one day once were and will again be in a state of total dependency. Where does it give, where does our dependency give someone else the right to define our humanity away? Only an intellectual could be that stupid. Ordinary people, very frequently, you know, you'll just talk to people and they're saying, yeah, I, I didn't go to college or, you know, I'm just an ordinary housewife. I'm just a guy, you know, an insurance salesman. But you can't kill a baby. You know? But intellectuals can think themselves into anything. They're smart, they're educated, but they're so often unwise and in love with their brains. I, I said this once before that intellectuals are in love with IQ the way men are in love with their penises, right? It gives them pleasure and self esteem, and so they think it's the center of the universe. But the intellect, the IQ, is just a talent for analysis. It's a talent for taking things apart. That's the IQ that they measure. It's a wonderful talent. You can do wonderful things with a good IQ. Intelligence is a wonderful gift, but it's not the only gift. There's also the gift of seeing things whole. And very frequently, people who don't have the talent of analysis have a greater power of seeing things whole. And they understand humanity better. Moms Almost all moms, any good mom, understands humanity better than an intellectual. I mean, this is something I noticed. This is something, if you're a married man, if you're a happily married man, you start out thinking, you know, my wife is crazy. The things she says are crazy. And then slowly over the years, you start to think, you know, she's not that crazy. She just sees things a different way than I see them. She's not uh, analytical. She's coming at it in a different way. And yet the things she says turns out to be right very frequently. So you start to understand there are different ways of seeing the world. The brokenness of people is something that intellectuals don't see. They think they're above the brokenness of people. You know, I used to talk about the fact that Obama wasn't evil. And people on the right would get furious. Yes, he's evil. He's evil. He's, Obama, that's not evil. That's not only a spoiled American who's never seen an evil president, because uh, we, we've never had an evil president, thank God, 
would think that Obama's evil. Obama doesn't sit around. The devil doesn't say to Obama, look, Obama, you could be king. And Obama goes, yes, king, I could have all the power. That's not what he thinks. What he thinks is he's so smart that he can live your life better than you can, and it will be good for you. The decisions he make will be better for you than the decisions you would make. That's the intellectual pride. That's the pride that sucks people in. And that's why they, 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 that's how they get seduced by power is not because they're evil, because they want to do good. They just don't understand that you should be making the choices for your own life, that even if they made better choices for your life, they would be taking your life away from you by making those choices. And that's how they get seduced by power. I think that intelligent people are more easily seduced because they think they're better than other people. You saw Don Lemon and his pals laughing at those evil Trumpers who wanted to fight China, who wanted lower taxes, who wanted less government, those evil, crazy Trumpers who don't know math and reading like uh, Rick Wilson know, but they know better about policy because they know being free is important. I mention all of this because I want to talk about the fuss going on about vaccinations. And I want to start out by saying I'm vaccinated. I think people should get vaccinated. I love not having smallpox. I I love, you know, not having uh, polio. Vaccinations are a good thing. But who is get who's getting vaccinated and who isn't getting vaccinated? And this is the big thing. They're kind of demonizing unvaccinated people right now. The New York Times, a former newspaper, runs a headline that says least vaccinated U.S. counties have something in common. The Trump voters, it's dumb, stupid, Rick Wilson hating, hated, Don, uh, Don Lemon hated Trump voters who are too stupid to get vaccinated. And whose fault is that? Well, Dana Bash on CNN, she knows she's talking to the Surgeon General here. This is cut 17. President Biden did accuse social media platforms uh, of killing people. Do you think conservative media like Fox News are doing the same? Are they killing people, too, with rhetoric like you just heard? Well, then I think all of us, including the media, including individuals, health professionals, have a responsibility to share the truth about health as science dictates, as science informs us. So it's a good narrative, right? It makes sense. Fox News Republicans are getting vaccinated less than Democrats. Republicans watch Fox News because it's the only channel where people don't laugh at them like Don Lemon and Rick Wilson laugh at them. It's the only people where, place where people will take their opinions seriously and discuss their opinions and give them the kind of information they can trust. So it must be Fox News's fault that Republicans aren't getting vaccinated. But let's think about it for a minute, okay? Let's think about what the left has done, right? Let's think about what the government has done. The government on on both sides, the government, no matter who is running it, what we'll call the deep state. It's too it's too early. You know, there's a lot of certainty going around about whether the lockdowns were good and whether, you know, the masks are good and all that stuff. There's too much certainty going around. It's a little too soon to say what could have been done better and what could have been done worse. But the one thing we know is what was done was done badly. We were told that we needed to shut down for 15 days to slow the spread. That was a lie. It was a year and a half. It was more than that. 15 days to slow the spread. That wasn't us. It was them. We did what we were told. We said, okay, 15, that makes sense. You know, we don't want to overwhelm the hospitals. We shut down. They wouldn't let us come out. We were told that Walmart and strip clubs could stay open, but your churches had to stay closed. It was fine. You weren't going to catch COVID in, the, in Walmart or in a strip club, but if you go to church... You'd be gone like that. We were told that rich people needed to stay home, but poor people, they were essential workers because I need to have a sandwich delivered. I need my Amazon books delivered. So we ne- the poor people could go out there. They'd be safe. They'd be fine. But it was rich people had to be safe and stay indoors. 
Leaders like Gavin Newsom in California and Mayor uh, Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, uh, Ubersturmführer Gretchen von Whitmer in Michigan, uh, they all made rules for people and then broke those rules. They went to their fancy dinners. They visited their relatives. They got their hair done. And when they were asked about it, they all said the same thing. Well, it was important for us to do it because we're important people. You're nobody. You're nobody. I mean, that's that's the way people th- that that's the way the government has treated people. Dr. Fauci told us not to wear masks, then to wear masks, then to wear two masks, then to wear masks if we were vaccinated, then not to wear masks if we were if we were vaccinated. And then it was like if you said Dr. Fauci's an idiot, this guy's a lying uh, dirtbag. It was like, what do you? He's Dr. Fauci. He is a, he is the man. He is our hero. They were singing songs about him on late night television. He was what a wonderful guy he was. When Donald Trump's policies facilitated the rapid development of a vaccine, this is what Vice President Kamala Harris says. This is said. This is cut three. If the Trump administration approves a vaccine before or after the election, should Americans? Take it, and would you take it? If the public health professionals, if Dr. Fauci, if the doctors tell us that we should take it, I'll be the first in line to take it. Absolutely. But if Donald Trump tells us I should ta- that we should take it, I'm not taking it. <laughs> and this is, what, this is what your president now, now that the evil Donald Trump is gone, this is what your president now says is cut eight. The, vi- the, the, the various shots that people are getting now cover that. You're okay. You're not going to you're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. (laughs) Just not true. It's just not true. I mean, COVID, the vaccinations help. They probably will make your COVID less bad if you get it. But they work. They're about 93 to 95 percent effective. That means that five out of 100 people are going to get still get COVID. Hopefully it'll be less uh, powerful than it would have been. Again, I'm in favor of vaccines. I got a vaccine. I went to my doctor. You should go to your doctor and ask your doctor about a vaccine, uh, whether you need it or not. That that's fine. But he's lying. He's lying that it's going to totally protect you. So that's that's the, what the government has done. And then there's the news media, which is a corporate arm of the Democrat Party. And they told us that Donald Trump rallies were super spreaders, but Black Lives Matter riots were absolutely necessary so they wouldn't spread the disease. Oh, and they were mostly peaceful, too. They lied about that. They said that Donald Trump colluded with the Russians. That was a total lie. They made a hysterical fuss about the dodgy sex charge against Brett Kavanaugh. That was a lie. And then they covered up sex charges that were plausible against Joe Biden. The New York Times has pushed into schools their completely false 1619 narrative that this country is racist in its DNA, which is a lie. Uh, When plausible evidence of Hunter Biden's influence peddling and the fact that Joe Biden was probably involved with that influence peddling came out, they shut down. They knocked the New York Post off social media uh, and they said that that was a lie. And NPR said, oh, we're not going to run that story. That's just a distraction. Now they're teaching our children in school critical race theory. They're teaching them to hate each other over races, over their race. And when we say stop doing that, they say we're not doing it and we will continue to do it. And now they say to us, oh, and take the vaccine. And we say, screw you. You have lied. You have abused us. You have mistreated us. You have called us names. You have silenced us. And now you say, take the vaccine and we're supposed to believe you. And we're so why should they? But conservatives aren't taking the vaccine because the government and their media have violated their trust. 
They have violated their trust again and again. They have lied again and again. They have mistreated. It, Trump voters are not not taking Trump voters were proud of Trump for producing this vaccine so quickly as well they should have been. It's the government they won't listen to. It's the media they won't listen to because the media has lied and lied and lied again. They censor you if they if you speak the truth on social media. They want to kick you off social media. And now they want to kick you off social media for spreading ideas, disinformation, what they call disinformation about the vaccine. But let's take a closer look at that, because now what they're doing, they've lost your trust. They deserve to lose your trust. And now they're going to lose the fact that you don't they're going to use the fact that you don't trust them to censor you, to censor you and to end free speech. All right. I am there. I am in my new home and I cannot wait to get my ring security system set up. There are a thousand reasons why protecting my home matters to me, mostly because I actually have a home. If someone stops by or something's going on outdoor around the house, ring lets me know. It's peace of mind anytime knowing that your home is protected. Your whole home is protected with easy-to-install indoor and outdoor cams. And get this, the cams work seamlessly with Ring Alarm. And you see what's happening from anywhere, no matter where you are, all on one very simple app. It's never been more important to have a reliable home security system. I want to know that my family and I can keep an eye on our home no matter where we are right from our phone and know when those packages are delivered as well. Protect your home anytime from anywhere with Ring Alarm. Go to ring.com slash Clavin for a special offer on a Ring Alarm security kit today. You can build the system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. That's ring.com slash Clavin. Ring.com slash Clavin. Anyone comes to your home, no matter where you are, say to him, how do you spell Clavin? And if he knows the answer, call the cops. So follow the pattern here. First, they lie to you. They insult you. They diss your president. They lie about your president. They tell you you're deplorable for voting for him. Now you say, well, I don't trust you anymore. Uh, and I, I want other information. I'm passing information to my friends that doesn't come from the government. And now they want to censor you, right? This is Jen Psaki talking about knocking people off social media. But not only is the government going to work with social media to knock you off your Facebook page, but if you're knocked off your Facebook page, they want to censor you everywhere. There's cut 13. Steps that we have, um, you, you know, that could be constructive for the public health uh, of the country are uh, providing uh, for, for Facebook or other platforms to measure and publicly share the impact of misinformation on their platform uh, and the audience it's reaching. Uh, also with the public, with all of you, um, to create robust enforcement strategies that bridge their properties and provide transparency about rules. You shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others uh, if you afford. Uh, uh, providing misinformation out there. <laughs> the government, the government is going to ban, is going to work collude with social media to censor you if you're putting out what they call, what the government calls disinformation. Here's Joe Biden uh, demagoguing it as he now always does. Uh, this is number twelve. What's your message to platforms like Facebook? They're killing people. I mean, it really. They are, look. The only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated, and, that, and, they're, and they're killing people. So fi- Facebook is killing people. Senator Amy Klobuchar introduced a bill yesterday that would strip Thursday, that would strip online platforms such as Facebook and Twitter of their liability protections under uh, Section 230 
if their technology spread misinformation related to public health emergencies such as the COVID-19 vaccination, right? So they're going to, they're threatening, they probably won't get this bill passed, but they're threatening their 230 exemption, which should be taken away, but they're threatening them only on this COVID disinformation. Who spreads now? Remember, Fox News is killing people. Facebook is killing people. Fox News and Facebook are working together. Kate Bedenfield, who is the White House communications director, she tells you who the culprit is here. Cut 24. It is also the responsibility of the people creating the content. And again, I would go back to, you know, there are conservative news outlets who are creating irresponsible content that's sharing misinformation about the vi- about the virus that's getting shared on these platforms. So it is a big and complicated ecosystem. And everybody bears responsibility to ensure that we are not providing people with bad information about a vaccine that will save their lives. So here again, right. Here, here's the logic again, right? They lied to you about Trump and collusion. They lied to you about Brett Kavanaugh. They covered up for Joe Biden and his throwing a woman against the wall and jamming his hand up her skirt, allegedly. Uh, they covered up for Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's influence peddling. They cover up for all that. So now you don't believe them. And now that must be the fault of Fox News. It's the fault of Fox News that you don't believe them, right? They lied and lied and lied to you. Now you don't believe them. That's the fault of Fox News. So they're going to censor Fox News. They're going to censor conservative media. Here are some people who have been censored on conservative media, right? People who say men can't become women. People who say that men who claim to be women aren't actually women. They've been thrown off social media. People who said that Hunter Biden's laptop showed evidence of Biden family venality. That was in the New York Post. They were banned from Twitter. People who said the Chinese virus came from Chinese labs, which it probably did. They were banned. Donald Trump has been banned everywhere because he said he thought the election was stolen. But Hillary Clinton thought her election was stolen and she was not banned from anywhere. Stacey Abrams, who's still the governor of fairyland, of the, of the land of imagination, uh, where she She's still running that country. Uh, She has never been banned from anywhere. She's been on the cover of magazines looking very noble and heroic for claiming this. Remember the new rule when Twitter made a rule? I think it was Twitter, YouTube. They all work in collusion when they made the rule. No one who challenges an election, the validity of an election that's already over, right, will be allowed on social media. That was the new rule after Trump lost the election. But here's a montage of, I think this is from Grabian, of Democrats after Trump won the election talking about election security. Cut nine. I continue to think that our voting machines are too vulnerable. Her research has repeatedly demonstrated that ballot recording machines and other voting systems are susceptible to tempering. Even hackers with limited prior knowledge, tools, and resources are able to breach voting machines in a matter of minutes. In 2018, electronic voting machines in Georgia and Texas deleted votes for certain candidates or switched votes from one candidate to another. The biggest seller of voting machines is doing something that violates Cybersecurity 101, directing that you install remote access software, which would make a machine like that, you know, a magnet for fraudsters and hackers. These voting machines can be hacked quite easily. You could easily hack into them. It makes it seem like all these states are doing different things, but in fact, three companies are controlling this. It is the individual voting machines that some pose that pose some of the greatest risk. There are a lot of states that are dealing with antiquated machines. Right. Which are vulnerable to being hacked. That was Kamala Harris. That last one. 
none of these people were banned from anywhere. This only became disinformation when Republicans started saying the same things. And magically, it became disinformation. When Kamala Harris said she wouldn't take a Trump vaccine, she wasn't banned from anywhere. It only became disinformation when Joe Biden's numbers weren't as good as he wanted them to be. And then it became Fox News's fault that you didn't believe the people who had been lying to you ceaselessly for four years. I mean, Joe Biden just the other day came out and said that the uh, I was as I was joking about in the opening to the show that if you want people to show their driver's licenses before they vote. Well, here's what he said. We're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Since the Civil War. The Confederates back then never breached the Capitol as insurrectionists did on January the 6th. I'm not saying this to alarm you. I'm saying this because you should be alarmed. That is that is rank demagoguery. Nobody's banning this president. They banned the last president from social media. Nobody is banning this president from social media for saying it was like the Civil War when between six and seven hundred thousand Americans killed one another. And this is and some guy in a moose hat goes into the Capitol. And, you know, now they're they have the January 6th commission. I love this. They have the January 6th commission. So Pelosi says, yeah, they're going to be eight Democrats and five Republicans. That should be fair. So go ahead, pick your five Republicans. So Kevin McCarthy picks Jim Jordan and Jim Banks, and Pelosi throws them off the committee because they're partisans. Adam Schiff is on this committee. Adam Schiff, who lied and lied and lied about Russian collusion, he's on the committee. This is a coordinated attack on free speech. This is a coordinated, colluded attack on free speech. We don't believe them when they tell us the truth because they lied, and then they, they're going to cancel us for not believing the truth. NPR ran this story about us, about the Daily Wire, about Ben Shapiro, outrage as a business model. Outrage is a business model, says NPR, how Ben Shapiro is using Facebook to build an empire. Okay, this is by Miles Parks. And there's a picture of Shapiro. You know, uh, the guy, you can't look at that face. You can't trust that guy. But sure. In 2021, Ben Shapiro rules Facebook. The conservative podcast host and author's personal Facebook page has more followers than the Washington Post, which has been lying about everything since Trump was elected. And Shapiro drives an engagement machine unparalleled by anything else on the world's biggest social networking site. An NPR analysis of social media data found that over the past year, stories published by the site Shapiro founded, The Daily Wire, received more likes, shares, and comments on Facebook than any other news publisher by a wide margin. Even legacy news organizations that have broken major stories or produced groundbreaking investigative work don't come anywhere close. Daily Wire articles with headlines such as book review, proof that wokeness is projection by nervous racist white women who can't talk to minorities without elaborate codes regularly garner tens of thousands of shares for the site. And Shapiro is turning that Facebook reach into a rapidly expanding, cost-efficient media empire. So who do we go to? Jamie Settle, the director of the Social Networks and Political Psychology Lab at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. We need a psychologist to explain why Ben Shapiro is so successful and why The Daily Wire is so popular. And he says there's a demand among certain subsets of the public for outrage politics, right? The New York Times is an outrage politics. The New York Times every single day runs stories. Republicans pounce on this and Republicans are planning. You know, they, they call attempts to establish election security at the New York Times. They call them attempts to limit 
election rights. Why isn't that outrage journalism? That is outrage journalism. Of course it is. He says the psychologist goes on, this happens on both the left and the right, but the people who do this on the right have just found a lot more successful ways of doing it. Maybe we have more reason to be outraged. But here's the part that gets me. Here's the part that gets me in this story. This is NPR, remember. This is partly paid for by you, by taxpayers. It says, publicly, the Daily Wire does not purport to be a traditional news source. On its about page, the site declares the Daily Wire does not claim to be without bias and goes on to say we're opinionated, we're noisy, and we're having a good time. It's not clear that the millions of people engaging with the site's news story every month recognize that. Well, of course not. They're dumb conservatives. How could they know it? It's at the bottom, by the way. It's not on the about page. Every single story the Daily Wire puts out has at the bottom, this is a conservative news site. We're the fastest growing, I can't remember the exact words, but it's we're the fastest growing conservative news site. It says right there, this is like accusing Shapiro of secretly being Jewish, you know? Yeah, he wears a yarmulke and he talks about Judaism all the time, but he sure talks about Israel a lot. That's suspicious. I think he may be a Jew. Like accusing us of secretly being conservative, that the people who come on this site don't know we're conservative is a laugh. I'll tell you where they don't know where they don't know people are being biased, NPR, the New York Times, the New York Times that has all the news that's fit to print, NPR, uh, funded in part by tax dollars, NPR, when Hunter Biden's laptop was exposed and there was evidence of collusion, of I'm sorry, of influence peddling by Hunter Biden with Joe Biden's assistance, NPR's managing editor for news, Terrence Samuels, put out this tweet. We don't want to. It says, why haven't you seen any stories from NPR about the New York Post Hunter Biden story? The New York Post knocked off Twitter, remember? And his answer was, we don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories. And we don't want to waste the listeners and readers time on stories that are just pure distractions. To Terrence Samuels, to be fair to Samuels, he was just doing his job which is lying to protect Democrats. That's his job, all right? But Samuels at NPR, he doesn't know he's biased. He doesn't know. It doesn't say on their about page, we're uh, we're uh, having fun here and we're a left-wing uh, site. It doesn't say that like we say it on every story. It doesn't tell you the truth about it. But they don't know they're biased. This is the incredible arrogance of the left. This incredible arrogance of the left. They are attacking us for disagreeing with them. They have set up this system in which everything that disagrees with them is hate. They invent new uh, categories of human beings, transgender women. You can think like, yeah, well, that's not really a woman. Oh, that's hateful. That's hateful. Suddenly, gay marriage is a thing. Marriage, which has only ever meant one thing through all of human history. It has only been used to describe the relationship between a man and a woman. Suddenly, it's used to describe the relationship between two men. And people say, well, you know, I have some moral problems. Oh, that's hateful. That's a hateful thing. Whenever you disagree with them, you have become hateful. Whenever you're hateful, they can knock you off media. They can knock you off social media. They can ban you. They can get you fired. They can get you canceled. It's a system they have set up, a logical system for banning the opposition. And the only reason you need to ban the opposition is when you're wrong. You do not censor people when you're right. You do not censor people when you're telling the truth. You censor people when they're telling the truth. They have lied and lied and lied, and now we don't believe them, and they want to censor us for not believing them so they can go online. So I never sleep, and that's why I love my My Pillow pillow because it's so comfortable, so I can lie awake on it comfortably 
all night. But now MyPillow is changing the game with their six-piece towel set. And while I never sleep, I do occasionally bathe. And this towel set is made with USA cotton, making it extremely absorbent. It's still providing that soft feel you look for in a towel. The set comes with two bath, two hand towels, two washcloths, typically retailing for $109.99. But for a limited time, you can get this set. Get this for $39.99. That's over 60% in savings. They come in a variety of colors and sizes and are the best towels you will use. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code DAILYWIRE at checkout or call 800-651-1148. You'll receive this amazing six-piece towel set for just $39.99. That's MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code DAILYWIRE or call 1-800-651-1148 and use the promo code DAILYWIRE there. Go to MyPillow.com. Make sure you use the promo code DAILYWIRE. One of the other tricks the left uses in trying to silence people is they have all this vast, this vast cancel culture where really coordinated attacks on people made. It's meant to make businesses feel that there is a mob of people standing outside ready to boycott them when in fact it's really like 12 people with 7,000 Twitter names. You know, it's really not that many people, but they have mastered this technique of canceling people and of course the cowardice uh, of business and the cowardice of media outlets where they fire you instantaneously. So they've worked this cancel culture up into a science. And then they start to say that anything that happens anywhere is cancel culture. So I don't know about you, but I was really happy to see a bunch of hot Swedish blondes beat the uh, U.S. soccer team in the Olympics. I, you know, they humiliated the U.S. soccer team. So you've got these hot Swedish blondes beating these purple-headed lesbian anti-Americans, these women who actually kneel when the, the, they're there to honor America. That is the point of it, right? They're not being paid. They're th that is the point of an American Olympic team is to honor America, and they kneel during the national anthem. They kneel for the flag instead of standing for the flag. <laughs> I thought, good, some hot Swedish blondes kicked them off the field. Terrific. And they said, well, that's cancel culture. The fact that the Olympic ratings are just going to go down the drain, the, the fact that wokeness always leads to brokenness, they think that's cancel culture. No, that's people making a choice about what they want to see and making moral choices about what they want to see. We're not threatening anybody. We probably should boycott more people. We should probably boycott all the people who are telling lies about America, but we, we really don't do it. What they do, though, is Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A wants to open a a, a restaurant anywhere in the world, they show up because they are angry that Chick-fil-A, the guy who runs Chick-fil-A, wasn't in favor of gay marriage. It's not always cancel culture. The thing is, they define us as hateful. You know that I'm pretty libertarian about sex. Other people's sex lives are not my business. I don't care. But to oppose homosexuality, to say homosexuality is a sin, is not necessarily hateful. There's very uh, well-reasoned philosophy about that. Obviously, you have to be loving to people. You shouldn't be hateful toward people. But to say that it's a sin is not hateful. They just don't want you to have a different opinion. To say that a person who says, a man who says he's a woman is not a woman is simple fact. That is a simple fact. I don't know whether necessarily every transgender person is mentally ill, but clearly it is a, it, there is a disparity between the mental perception that person is having and the reality of his physical life, which is what defines your gender. Your gender is a physical fact about you. 
You know, I loved Islamophobia as if people woke up one day. I love that phrase as if people woke up one day and said, Ooh, Islam, I don't know why. I suddenly spiders in Islam. I'm suddenly afraid of them. No reason. No reason. I'm just suddenly afraid. You know, I don't know what it is. I don't know why. You know, it's like they never killed 3000 people in a single day. Like Islam wasn't an anti, a very like a branch of Islam was not a flagrantly anti-American, anti-freedom, anti-Christian philosophy that was actually responsible for killing people. This is, you know, this is why I defend a guy like Nick Fuentes when they ban him. I like, I, I disagree with every word out of Nick Fuentes' mouth. I don't like what he's saying. I think he actually is hateful. I think he's anti-Semitic. I think he's anti-black. You know, and people keep saying, "Oh, you're not appreciating his ideas." I've listened to a lot of his ideas, and you're right. They're not even ideas. They're not even ideas. They're just, uh, they're just anger and uh, twistedness and all this stuff. But I defend him because I know once they can cancel him, they can cancel me. They can cancel you. I understand. I'm not afraid of him. I'm happy to have him put on his, stu- you know, say his stupid stuff on the air. He has the right to say it. Let him let him win the argument if he can. I, I believe he can't. I believe as long as we're a free country, people like him will be, ex- you know, pushed to the margins. But they once they censor him, they can censor everybody. So then the, the left says, well, you're doing the same thing. The other day at TPUSA, right, they were having their big uh, conference and a porn star, Brandy Love, she calls herself, she was a, a pro-Trump porn star, was there, and I don't know if she was going to give a speech, but she was showing up at the panels and all this stuff, and they took her uh, idea away and they made her leave. And people started saying, well, that's just cancel culture. It's the right is, you know, to blame for cancel culture, which is complete garbage as far as I'm concerned. In political reality, political reality is such that conservatives and libertarians often have to stick together so we can elect people. And libertarians think porn stars are fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And conservatives tend to think, no, you know, porn is degrading. I, th- I believe porn is degrading. I'm not sure what should be done about it. I, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't break my heart if the government restricted porn, restricted the reach of, spor- of porn. I think that free speech is, is supposed to be about ideas. It's not necessarily about uh, having actresses degrade themselves. I mean, people you know, I, I heard AOC once say sex work is work. And I thought, well, the feeling when your congresswoman and your pimp are telling you the same thing, right? Because the people who go into the porn industry so often are on drugs, so often have degraded, horrifying lives. Of course they do. You know, your body, your body is not all of you. Your body, your sex life is not there to be abused. Your sex life is not there uh, to be used for the commercial pleasures and profit of other people. Uh, you know, of course, that's a degrading way to live. And the people who are in that industry, the, like people who are in the prostitution industry, are not being treated well. They are not treating themselves well. And so TPUSA is a conservative organization that had the right to say, no, you do not represent who we are. It's like when the Catholic Church says, if you are in favor of abortion, you're not a Catholic because we, the church, define what Catholicism is, right? TPUSA defines what it is. It's an an idea organization. They had the perfect right to push people out. And the fact that the fact that libertarians have a different philosophy, and if you have a libertarian uh, gathering, then you can have Brandy Love there, and nobody's going to question that. You know, it, it it's not a problem. The same goes for people's reaction to Bruce Jenner. What, what's his name now? Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> Sorry, Caitlyn Jenner running for governor in California, a race that he slash she is never going to uh, win. But a lot of conservatives say, yes, I I will vote for. Bruce, uh, you know, I have a hard time calling the guy Caitlin. I'm sorry. The guy was an Olympic level male athlete. I don't think you can suddenly <laughs> change yourself, but I'll call him. I'll call him Caitlin as a matter of politeness. I do not believe he's a woman, uh, but I'll call him Caitlin uh, as a matter of politeness. So 
some conservatives say I would vote for Kalen because he is for business and low taxes. And that's what my conservative conservatism consists of. But other people quite rightly say, no, that's conservatism is more than that. That's libertarianism. That's fine. You can believe in that. But I'm a conservative and I believe that there is a moral order. And part of that moral order is the way we treat ourselves sexually. And part of the way we treat ourselves sexually is being honest about who we are. And when you are uh, born into the world with a male body, you are always a male. If you say, well, I'm a transgender female, then what you are is a male who thinks and feels that for some reason that he's a woman. And whether that's mental illness or whether it is, you know, just a uh, a condition, I don't know what it, you know, I, we don't know. We really don't know very much about it, to be honest, why it happens, how it happens. Is Are there different ways that it happens? But a conservative, it is not at all hateful to say this is not something that I approve of, right? This is not, I think this is a violation of the moral order, a violation of your gender. Sports Illustrated, I, you know, many years ago, I wrote an article saying that I had uh, canceled my subscription to Sports Illustrated because they were anti-God, anti-conservative. I, I just wanted to read about sports. I didn't want to care what their opinion was about George W. Bush. And a guy actually went on the Hugh Hewitt show to denounce me, <laughs> to say that I, I took his article apart. I took his article to pieces. It was such an ugly article. So now they, they have their swimsuit issue. And I got to admit, I love the swimsuit issue, but I was always a little bit embarrassed by it. I was always, I was always thinking like, you know, I mean, this is really not an athletic, uh, this is not a sports story. This is just pretty girls. It's just basically second rate playboy. So now the person on their swimsuit issue is a transgender person. It's a male uh, who has had his body rearranged into a female costume. And we're supposed to look at that and be fine with it. I personally just find it insanely creepy. I find it really, really creepy. If I got that magazine and I hadn't already canceled my subscription, I would cancel my subscription. Okay. But this is not cancel culture. This is a reasoned approach to disagreement. It is disagreeing with what they're telling us. You know, they, they actually say there are people on the left who actually say if you won't date somebody who has the same sexual organs with you as you, but says uh, he or she is a woman, that there's something bigoted about you. They define what bigotry is. And all we're saying is, no, you don't get to define it. We get to define our own moral code. We get to say what we think the moral code is. We can argue about it. I'm happy to talk about it, happy to disagree about it. But I will not be called hateful. I will not be censored. And I will not be quiet simply because the left has defined my opinion out of existence. All right, if your car's not working and you want to walk down to the car shop and talk to some guy who doesn't know anything more about cars than you do, well, then you're a clown. Don't be a clown. Say rockauto.com. Then you're not a clown. You're a real man. Because when you say rockauto.com, the ladies know you are smart enough to get your car and car body parts right on your computer. Rockauto.com is a family business. They've been serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. The catalog is unique. It's remarkably easy to navigate. It really is. And you can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer without leaving home. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write Clavin in their How Did You Hear About Us box, but don't just write Clavin. Write Clavin. You got to write it just the same way you say rockauto.com. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no easy True. Just true.
Now, a lot of people uh, complain, not a lot of people, but a number of people have complained about the fact that we talk about God a lot on the show. And it is my mission to alienate every single person uh, in America and then move on to the world. I was, you know, today, America, tomorrow, the world. So I'm going to continue to do this uh, because I think it's important. One of my big objections uh, to conservatism is that we're too often we're reactionary. We know what we're against. We know what we don't like, but we don't tell people why we don't like it because we have something positive to say. In other words, we don't tell people that this is wrong because we, we know something that is right, that will give you joy, that will give you pleasure, that will make things better. Uh, and I, I've been thinking a lot about identity politics and a little bit of this is going to be thinking out loud. But, but still, you know, I've been thinking about identity politics and how I find it incredibly offensive. I find identity politics incredibly offensive. This idea that our identity is a a group identity, that we identify with our race, uh, with our gender, with our sexuality, and how those things affect our power standing uh, in the world and the power standing of our group in the world. If I belong to a group that can claim to be a victim, uh, then I can claim to be a victim, and then I have some sort of uh, advantage over you because you're supposed to feel guilty and I'm supposed to be able to uh, dictate what kind of words you use, how you treat me, even how you look at me. Otherwise, it's a microaggression and I get to complain about you and then I get to hurt you. I get to hurt your career. I get to hurt your standing in a university or whatever it is. I find this a, uh, it's kind of a, a sick combination, nonsensical combination of materialism the idea that your body wholly defines you and that you are nothing else mixed with this kind of irrational uh, spiritual nonsense where your body doesn't matter at all, where you get to essentially say, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I look like a man, but I'm a woman. Uh, some people that even feel that you can choose your race. And it's, it's interesting to me that identity politics, because it is based in a lie, um, so often finds its way to becoming the very evil that it decries, right? So it starts out, uh, the a black guy starts out by saying racism is bad. You should treat every, you should judge people not by the color of their skin, but by the contact of content of their character. And it ends up several decades later with whiteness is evil and white people are inherently racist and white people can't help it. They are going to be racist and you need to watch out. You need to check your whiteness and you have it essentially has become the thing that it decried. It has become the thing that it denounced. Uh, feminism begins by saying men are uh, macho and they are use their strength, their physical strength too much and they're too aggressive uh, and they're just belligerent and all this. And it ends by saying women should be more like that. Women should be belligerent and aggressive and talking about strength. Everything that uh, feminists always talk about is strength. She's strong. She's tough. I always say if I wanted to marry somebody that's strong, I'd have married a guy. You know, there are other feminine attributes that that actually are uh, much more beneficent for the world to have in play that feminists now reject. They begin by saying, you know, well, transgender, you know, some people uh, feel that they're a woman in a man's body, and that's very painful. It's a very painful thing to feel that way. You know, it's a very difficult thing to feel that way, so we shouldn't be mean to them. And they end up saying, well, it really is a woman. They end up essentially enlisting us into this disorder, into this mental illness. And for me, that's obvious. It's obvious why that happens. It's obvious why you end up with evil. It's because you're telling a lie. 
You know, there's a, a line in the Bible, um, you know, straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to the kingdom of heaven, but broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to perdition. A lot of people think that all roads lead to God. They'll say God is a mountain that can be climbed from any side. And no, I don't actually believe that's true. I believe that the way to God is actually a straight way, a very uh, a very narrow way, uh, because the truth is the truth. When something is true, then everything around it is not true. If the world is round, then it's not flat. And you can say a lot of false things about the shape of the earth, uh, but you can only say one true thing about the shape of the earth, that the earth is round. And I think the same is true of God. So once you start um, telling lies about reality, once you start defining a person by his race, uh, by his gender, by his sexuality, once you start to say that that's his identity, I think that that's a lie. Uh, and and once you say it, you are going to find yourself in an evil place because all lies lead to the same place. They all lead to darkness. So I started to ask myself, what does the Bible say about identity? What does Christianity say about identity? Uh, because a lot of times I have found, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I, 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 what I mean is I mean to offend everybody. Uh, I don't mean to offend anybody. I mean to offend everybody. But what I have found is that what the Bible says about things is so often rich and complex, but what people say that the Bible says is very simplistic and false. And so I go back to the Bible and I read through the Bible and I try to think to myself, you know, don't don't gloss over stuff that's difficult. Don't gloss over um, contradictory things. Try and find the truth in those things and what the whole Bible is saying all the time. So one of the things that at least the New Testament teaches us is that race is not what we think it is. It is not as essential as we think it is. It's not that it doesn't exist, but it's not as essential to your identity as you might believe. The Jews were very proud of being the Jews. They were proud of being the sons of Abraham. They felt that they are, and they still feel that they are, a people specially chosen by God. And yet John the Baptist said to people, do not say within yourself that we are children of Abraham because God is able to make stones, to turn stones into children of Abraham. So you have a race, you are special people that come from Abraham. But if God wants to just turn her to a rock and say, I'm going to make you people of Abraham, that's what he'll do. So in other words, there are responsibilities that come with your race and your race is not an essentially good or bad thing. It, ha it still is dependent on you. And that fits in with what Paul says about who you are in Christ. He says in Christ, uh, there is neither Greek nor Jew Right? So that means Greek there means Gentile. So there's neither Gentile nor Jew. There's neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. The Jews are famously circumcised and the Gentiles were not. He says there's neither, not, no barbarian. There's no Scythian. There's no slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. When you are in Christ, all of those, those identities, those racial identities, and even your social state, right? Even your social state is no longer part of your identity. Your identity is in Christ. We'll have to think more about what that means, but still. But he goes beyond that. In Galatians, Paul says, there is neither male nor female. Now, that's a really interesting thing. He's saying that in Christ, there is no male or female. And Jesus sort of confirms this. You know, when he's asked about who gets to marry who in the kingdom of heaven, he says in the resurrection, in the life of God, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels of God in heaven. He doesn't elaborate on that, but it sounds like gender is a thing that we experience in this world, but there is something beyond gender that we are and that our gender does not, even our gender does not 
define us. Now, most of us, including me, think that gender is an important part of what, I, for lack of a better word, I'll call my identity. I, I am a man. I've frequently said that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are men and women. Everybody else is pretty much the same. That those are the, That's the big divide in life. And in Paul also, we find instructions. He says there's no male or female in Christ, but here on earth, we have very distinct male and female roles. And he says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is the savior of the body. And he says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for the church that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water. And he says that men should love uh, their wives, husbands should love their wives as if they are their, his, their own flesh, as if your wife is your own flesh. That's interesting because a lot of people love to quote that, wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands, but they skip over that part uh, where men are supposed to love their wives like their own flesh. When you do that, uh, you know, it sounds like it's going to be kind of an unequal relationship when you say, wives, submit yourself to the authority of your husband. But when you add on that husbands have to love their wives like their own flesh, suddenly it's not as uh, unequal as you actually think it is. So there's no gender in Christ, but there are gender roles here on earth. There is no race, and yet there are chosen people, uh, and there are racial roles. There's a, a scene in one of the Gospels where a woman of Canaan, a Gentile, comes up and says to Jesus, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. Have mercy on me and heal her, and Jesus doesn't answer her. And he says, uh, and, and they, his disciples say, send her away, for she keeps making all this noise. And he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he won't listen to her because she's not a Jew. He won't listen to her because he's not a Jew. And finally, he says to her, it is not good to take the children's bread, the Jews' bread, and throw it to the dogs. And she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus says, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire, and he heals her daughter, right? So the races are different. There are different roles that they play. So, but in Christ, there is no race. So in Christ, there's no gender, but there are gender roles. In Christ, there is no race, but they are race roles. I have to tell you that story. I once heard a priest, an Episcopal priest, very leftist priest, talk about that story in which Jesus refused to help somebody because he wasn't Jewish. And he was absolutely, he couldn't, he said, I don't know what to say about this. He was absolutely stunned into silence that Jesus would recognize that there are racial roles, right? In fact, Jesus says to the Samaritans, the Jews are important because we know what we worship. Jews know what they worship. You don't know what you worship because he says salvation is from the Jews. So no gender, but gender roles, no race, but racial roles. Now, this brings me to a famous sentence, which is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, which is a sentence by Rousseau, where he says, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. And the reason it's a pet peeve is I have a pet peeve with people who say things beautifully that aren't true. It is not true that man is born free, and it's not true that everywhere he is in chains. But what is true is that man is born naked, and everywhere he is in clothes. That is, that we have roles that we play, and part of those roles are involved with our bodies, right? Because our social constructs, you know, the left is always saying this is a social construct, as if that were a bad thing. But our social constructs constructs grow out of our human state. And our human state is not a blank slate. We are fleshly. We are flesh. We're bodied. We are gendered. We're full of inequalities and difficulties. I'm never going to be as good a basketball player as LeBron James. There's no point in my saying that. There's no point in my trying to be equal with him in that field. Uh, we're filled with desires that we shouldn't satisfy, that will hurt us if we do satisfy them. Uh, 
our role is, is difficult. It is difficult. The flesh, it seems to be saying, is representative of something, but it is not that thing. Our genders, our races, the things that we are physically represents something. It speaks to us of something in the same way a word represents something, but it is not that thing. You know, uh, and it's not, it's not separable. You're, you're not separable from your flesh. When my father died, I remember walking in to see his body in the funeral home, and one of my brothers said to me, that's not him, and walked out of the room. And I thought, well, it's not him, but it's the only him I ever knew. You know, the only him I ever knew was in that body. We are not capable in this world of separating ourselves from our body. So this maleness that I am, this whiteness, this Jewishness that is part of my identity, these are all part of what, what represents me, but it is not the me I am. The soul and the body are kind of one thing in this world. It is just like language. It is just like me saying, you know, leftist tears tumbler is, represents this thing, but it is not that thing, but I can't express it any other way. In the same way, you cannot be expressed in any other way. You are male or female, you are black or white, you are a race, and you have a role to play. But when you play that role, right, you are playing something more than your physical body. You are expressing something more than your physical body, which is you're expressing the image of God. That is what you are expressing with your body. So you have to use your body and use your situation, use your womanhood or use your male manhood to express the image of God. If, for instance, you are a black person born into a world of bigotry, you have to represent the unbroken dignity without anger that God would represent if he were you, which, he, which essentially you are. You are in the image of God. You have to love your enemies, Jesus said, because God, that is the way God treats his enemies. You are representing this thing, which means curtailing some of the things that your body wants, which means playing into the role that your body represents, right? The left wants you to live into your flesh. They want you to live into the physical things that you are. But at the same time, they get confused and say, no, you can actually recreate those things. What God is saying is there is something that you cannot recreate, you cannot change, which is the image of God. And he says, God says to you, if you lose your life, you will find your life, right? If you lose your life, you will find your life. And that is because you are here as an image, uh, in the image of God, you are the word, your body is the words that God is using to describe a piece of himself. And it's up to you to use that body, that maleness, that blackness, that whiteness, whatever it is, to represent that God. And if you lose yourself, which is the identity of the left, the identity that your left, the left is teaching you is the things that you are worried about, your ambitions, your fears, your hatred. If you lose all of that and let all of that go and instead act as the person God made you to be, as the person who represents the image of God, then you will find yourself. And that, I think, is what Christian identity is. All right, coming up, we're going to talk to Brad Thor about his new novel, Black Ice, and we're going to solve all your problems with the mailbag. But first, let us talk about the new morning podcast at The Daily Wire. You know, up until now, Americans have been waking up to mainstream voices who care only about doing the current administration's bidding by misleading the public with carefully constructed lies. Now, from The Daily Wire newsroom, we present Morning Wire, the morning podcast that values your time and the truth. We're thrilled to see that our listeners share our appreciation of the facts because the podcast just launched this week. It's already the number two podcast on Apple and number six on Spotify. And we're proud of that. But 
We need you to help us get the news you need to know to where it belongs, number one. So subscribe now to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. It is brought to you by Daily Wire Editor-in-Chief John Bickley and co-host Georgia Howe. Morning Wire will wake you up with the latest developments in politics, sports, culture, and education, all with a heavy emphasis on the facts in 15 bite-sized minutes. Perfect for your daily commute. So again, subscribe to Morning Wire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a beat. And if you like what you hear, leave a five-star review and tell the podcast platforms that conservative news belongs at number one on the charts. And if you're looking for a collectible to add an incredible amount of value to your home, don't get a bobblehead. Pick up a copy of Ben Shapiro's newest book, The Authoritarian Moment, with his very own John Hancock right inside. After reading, feature it on your coffee table to spark conversations with house guests about just how authoritarian the future is looking and just how smart looking his signature is. He'll be signing copies next Tuesday, July 27th. Don't miss your chance. As you will read in the book, there is a lot happening right now that he predicted. So you'll want to pick up your copy of The Authoritarian Moment to get a sense of what's to come and how we can stop it. Go to dailywire.com Ben right now to order your signed copy before Tuesday's live signing. When you do, you'll be asked to type in a question at checkout, then catch Tuesday's live signing to see if Ben answers your question and you can watch him sign your book. What are you waiting for? Get your copy at dailywire.com slash Ben right now. All right, you know I like to elevate the show by bringing on guests who, uh, you know, have a little bit of class. Today we hit the jackpot with Brad Thor, one of the, not just one of the best-selling authors of thrillers uh, in the country, but one of the best authors of thrillers in the country. He's got 21 books out, uh, including the new thriller, Black Ice. Brad, it's great to see you. It's good to see you, too. Thank you for having me on, my friend. I said on uh, Twitter that you were going to come on, and somebody said, uh, wrote and said, Brad Thor is an American treasure. Uh, treat him right. But I, I just oh. can't do that. I can't bring myself to do that. So. My mom's <laughs> still following you on Twitter. That's awesome. <laughs> so I have to admit to you, I am, I'm two books back in the Scott Harvath uh, series, but I'm looking forward to catching up. They are always riveting, must-read books. Give us, uh, first of all, tell people, in case they're not familiar with it, tell them who Scott Harvath, your hero, is. So Scott Harveth comes out of the Navy SEAL community, and he got recruited to the White House to help bolster their counterterrorism expertise. And the president said, this guy's too good to have on defense, and we're going to turn him loose. If the bad guys aren't going to play by a rule book, then we're going to uncuff him, take him off the chain, let him go. But we're going to let him go knowing he'll only break the rules that are necessary to complete his mission. You've got to send somebody who's got a good moral compass if you're not going to equip him with a rule book. You know, can't be a sadist who's just breaking the rules for right. the fun and breaking it. So, so that's Harvard. And you mentioned the 21 books, which is so nice, Drew. I, I tell people they're like the Bond movies. You don't need to have seen all the Bond movies or any of the Bond movies to jump into the latest one. So if you haven't read a Brad Thor thriller, you could totally start with Black Ice. That, you know, that is absolutely true. I've picked them up, a couple of them out of order, and they're always just a complete story. And one of the things I love about them is they always have those premises that somewhere in the first 20 pages, you kind of sit up and go like, wait a minute, what? And give us just a, a brief uh, you know, run into how Black Ice starts. 
Okay. So Black Ice, Scott Harvath, America's top spy. That's what he does now. Uh, America's top spy. Uh, it's about mid-July for him. And he spent the entire summer so far in Norway with his new girlfriend who works for the Norwegian intelligence service, this gorgeous tall blonde named Solvi Kolstad, who's even better at the business than he is. Uh, and uh, DC calls him and says, listen, you're out of vacation days. You're out of sick days. You need to get back uh, to Washington. And this is his calling. He realizes there can be no American dream with without uh, men and women like him willing to protect and defend it. So he's getting ready to go back to the United States, walks out of his favorite cafe in Oslo and stepping out of a taxi cab is a ghost. Someone he killed halfway around the world several years ago. The chase is on from that moment and it goes all the way up into the Arctic. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that gets me. I, once I get to that page, I'm always uh, done for. I have to sit there until I finish it. Uh, you know, you, you know these guys, right? I mean, these are not you, when you're writing about these people, you know, these uh, these tough guys, all kinds of tough guys. How much research do you do to make this stuff real? I do a ton. And, you know, what I, ca I call what I do faction, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. Um, there's two questions I like to ask my my professional network, whether that be guys in the special operations community, the intelligence world, the State Department, White House. Uh, I had a good buddy of mine was the national security advisor under President Trump, a friend of mine since college. Uh, and I ask, what keeps you up at night? And what do you think the media is not covering enough? And I got something back on this book that I didn't even know was a big deal. And it was explained to me as the next Cold War, no pun intended, that's taking place uh, above the above the Arctic Circle. Russia is a player up there, but the Chinese have now inserted themselves and they're working with the Russians and they're trying. They've called themselves. This made Mike uh, Pompeo laugh out loud. Uh, the Chinese call themselves a near Arctic state. The closest <laughs> Chinese settlement to the Arctic Circle is over 800 miles away. They are not a near Arctic. They're nothing in Arctic. It's the Seinfeld of diplomatic terms. <laughs> But what's going on up there in China's desire to not only move commercial ships through the northern sea route over Russia, but also some of its own navy so that it could get from China to the east coast of the United States without being harassed in a bottleneck like the Straits of Malacca. It's, it's a real it's a tense, tense thing that's going on up in the Arctic. And I said, this is too good not to set a spy thriller against. Mm, yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to ask you to comment on this because I don't want you to attack a colleague. I'm, I, I, I love your stuff. And I also read uh, Daniel Silva. And Daniel Silva obviously has a lot of sources in the intelligence community. I know you weren't a big Trump fan, but during the Trump administration, suddenly Silva's books became, I thought, CIA disinformation. I thought his sources were feeding him things that were literally untrue to get at Donald Trump. How crazy am I? Is that insane? Well, guess what? You're not crazy. He's got a new book out uh, last week, and uh, I have not read it yet, but people have uh, people said that he did an interview. I don't know if it was today's show, but after January 6th, he, did a, he rewrote his ending. So he incorporates, and it's not from like a right of center perspective, yeah. but the insurrection, the general election. And uh, so I haven't read it, so I can't comment on it. I just know some people said... Uh, two books ago. They liked the book, but it was a little too PC. And I saw a lot of those comments and I thought, okay, I even have to be careful with my stuff. Uh, Seth Godin, uh, who's just a really brilliant uh, guy in the digital world, uh, I asked him about tone on social media at one point. And uh, Seth looked at me, brilliant, brilliant guy, and said, Brad, never forget, the name of your company is Thor Entertainment Group, okay? <laughs> your middle name is literally entertainment. So if you are not entertaining people, if you're pissing them off, 
you are kind of running counter to your mission statement. So um, I've never met Daniel Silva. Uh, I haven't read the the recent book. So, but I did hear that. So I, I think he's becoming, as I've become less political, I think he's becoming more. And listen, he sells a lot of books. And if his folks like that, then, you know, at the end of the day, I always tell people I work for the readers, not for the... Um, <laughs> Not for the publisher. And I want to get a five star review. That's my annual performance review. And I know some of my readers uh, didn't like my some of my positions on President Trump. Um, so that is totally understandable. They're coming to me not for political punditry, but for entertainment, you know, book in the hand, toes in the sand. Uh, so I, I take that stuff to heart because the readers are my customers and my employers. Yeah. So I want to keep them happy. That's very refreshing to hear. I do have to. You are a, an excellent observer of the international scene, especially the, the hot spots and the dangerous things. What, what's keeping you up at night at this point? Well, I'll tell you, I know that China, Russia, uh, Iran are watching what happens in Afghanistan. I am very pro uh, the pullout of troops there. It takes us 13 weeks to make a United States Marine in America. We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. If that army can't take care of stuff, it's just impossible. And, and we are you can't, you know, uh, uh, this idea that we can hand democracy to a nation on a silver platter and they'll embrace it and they'll protect it. You just can't do that. The French didn't sign up with us against the Great Britain, against the English until they knew we were going to win, until we proved we could put points on the board. So the, the culture in Afghanistan, I think, uh, is still uh, not congruent with the kind of rapid change we wanted to see there. It's too fractured, too tribal. Uh, and I don't think we should spend another drop of blood or a dollar of taxpayer money over there. And I'm glad that uh, Biden took on what Trump had intended to do too, which was get us out of Afghanistan. I don't think it's nation building is a good idea, Drew. And our core mission was to go degrade Al Qaeda and to get bin Laden. We did it. We should have never drifted into nation building. I mean, that is the graveyard of empires over there. I, you know, I completely agree. I, I went over there and came back and just said, there's no country. There's no place for us to, there's no nation for us to build. So I, I completely agree with you. Is there a danger at the same time of, of China looking at this and saying, these guys are paper tigers. These guys have not got what it takes to stay the course. Or do you think it's the opposite? Do you think they'll say, oh, they finally got some common sense? No, I think probably the biggest mistake, and it's one they would count on happening again, I, I would not shock me if they moved on Taiwan, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. Because during the Obama administration, uh, Putin moved on Ukraine and took the Crimean Peninsula. A lot of people don't know that at the breakup of the Soviet Union, a third of their nukes were in Ukraine. And we begged the Ukrainians, please let us help you get rid of these. You, you can't maintain them. You can't secure them. You don't want these. And Ukraine said, okay. We want your assurances, though, that our territorial integrity will be maintained. Nobody's going to invade us. Nobody's going to do anything bad to us. And we said yes. And we wrote it all up. And they said, OK, get Russia to sign it. And we're like, OK, we get Russia to sign it. So we made them a promise. And when Putin came in and took the Crimean Peninsula, all he got was a harshly worded letter from Barack Obama. So there is no and he did just it's exactly what Hitler did uh, when he went into Czech, did the Sudetenland saying, I'm just here to protect ethnic Germans. And that's what Putin said, ethnic Russians, I'm here to protect them. So this idea that we would somehow react to China if they moved on Taiwan, we did nothing for Hong Kong, nothing at all happened. And they they steamrolled through Hong Kong. I know it's a little bit different than Taiwan, but uh, the Navy's in really bad shape. Uh, the Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, under Ronald Reagan, had a big piece, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal last weekend, talking about how basically we are teaching command uh, people 
we're teaching the leaders in the Navy to kiss ass and not kick it. Hmm. So people who are getting ahead are apple polishers and they're just doing whatever the higher ups want. Uh, And the great line that I saw in this piece was that these fabulous admirals we had in World War II who helped us win that war, like Nimitz, like Halsey, they'd be out of the Navy right now. Hmm. They would be thrown out with this kind of one strike policy that the Navy has. So we're looking at a new secretary of the Navy coming in. That would be great. But I don't know that the Navy's in the shape it needs to be now, both equipment wise and training wise, uh, to to be able to handle something with with Taiwan, uh, I, I I just I don't see us moving. I don't I don't see us fighting to keep uh, Taiwan the way it is. I, I think that could slip away to the Chinese. To be that, honest with you, I, that I've been worried about that myself. I just think that I can't believe they wouldn't do it at this point, seeing who's president and how alert he is and how awake he is. What what do you think? Speaking of, you know, kissing ass instead of kicking ass, you have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I don't want to attack the guy personally. The guy's a soldier. He's a hero. You know, he's an American patriot. But he's out there talking about critical race theory. And I get letters from guys in the military who are saying this is real stuff, that they really are bothering us about this. Is this just right wing bloviating or is it really a problem in the military? So here's the deal. I, I write books. I don't have any problem with any book that uh, that General Milley wants to read. Right. OK, so if he wants to read about white rage or white fragility, whatever it is, uh, I, I had this whole thing with gays in the military. If you are willing to pick up a rifle and volunteer for our military, gay, straight, bi, I don't care. I'm thankful for you. I am grateful for you. There is no American dream, as I said before, without those willing to protect it. So I'm grateful for you. If the military is having problems internally where black soldiers feel that there is either uh, discrimination that's institutionalized within the army or any branch of service, that needs to be addressed. Every single soldier deserves respect and it should not make a difference what hair color they have, skin color, all that kind of stuff. What I don't like is if a problem is being created where there wasn't a problem to begin with. So I went through a program. um, I I attended police academy when I lived in Illinois, and there was an ex-Army guy in there, uh, African-American guy, and he was from another police department than mine. Great guy, super, super funny. I remember I sat down at lunch with him one day during uh, during our break from classes, and he had a whole bag of peanuts. And I said, I, my son's got a peanut allergy. If I get any of the dust on me and bring it home, he'll have a reaction. I just can't do it. And he winked at me and nodded like, I know what you're talking about. And he pointed to the color of his skin. <laughs> and it was a great gag. And I said, you're so funny. He goes, Brad, I got all of this in the military. He said, we'd bust on the Mexican guys. The Mexican guys would bust on us. The white guys would bust on the Mexicans. Mexicans would bust them back. Even He said, I didn't experience racism when I was in mm. the army. So if there's not a problem there, I don't want to create one. I don't like political correctness creeping in. So, but I'm not in the military and I, the guys that I'm talking to, you know, particularly on the special operations spectrum, uh, I haven't seen it. I've heard some stories that there is uh, some, some, there have been some instances of, uh, of just ignorance, but I don't know that it's institutionalized and I don't know it's something we need to be teaching. But again, I, I have no idea what Mark Milley is seeing in the military and if this needs to be done to retain uh, our, our black soldiers. If, it, if mm. it does and if they're if they feel marginalized or whatever, then damn right, let's get it fixed. Uh-huh. But if you're doing it just to do it and you're telling white people that they're inherently racist based on the color of their skin, that's bad and that's equally wrong. Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, you mentioned Iran. I, I've talked to people 
who look back. I read this book by Ross Douthat, who was who kind of argued that the feelings about Islamism, the powerful feelings about Islamism after 9-11 were kind of misdirected, that this was never a real threat. This was never uh, the kind of problem that we thought it was. How do you feel about that? When you when you mention Iran, I mean, Iran is a terrorist state. It's a dangerous place. We've got a president who really seems to be moving back into that kind of foolish deal that, that Obama got us into. Uh, how dangerous is this philosophy or is the problem just this country? Well, so the problem that we had a major opportunity, again, under the Obama administration. OK, so Obama was doing letters back and forth with the mullahs and all this kind of stuff. He wanted the Iran deal. He wanted it more than he wanted, in my opinion, a good outcome for the Iranian people. OK, so I don't know what kind of strategic intelligence they were looking at, how, you know, where Iran was as far as a breakout and all this kind of stuff and wanting to, you know, put the brakes on their uh, nuclear program. I do know that when the Green Revolution happened, we missed an unbelievable mm. opportunity to assist the Iranian people without putting any American boots on the ground, or maybe a couple, because you do need some people to help quietly. But covertly, we could have done so much for the Iranian people that they might have overthrown their own government and we would be in a better place right now. But the Iran deal and the letters back and forth were more important to the Obama administration than supporting a ground up grassroots revolution in Iran. I think it was a major miss. And again, I think uh, not backing up uh, Ukraine when Putin took the Crimean Peninsula, also a big miss. So if if Biden is planning on continuing Obama's foreign policy, I, I just don't think it's a I don't think it's a good outcome for the country, to be honest with you. It's, I mean, it, these these evil philosophies and guys like Putin. I mean, I, I hear people on TV on the right saying that we pick on Putin too much. To me, the guy is a pure gangster. I mean, it's a great co it's a great country filled. The Russian people yeah. are really neat people. It's a they wonderful love to culture, read. Yeah. They love to go to ballet, uh, to, to watch the ballet. They like uh, to go to concerts, classical music, all the way to rock. I mean, it's my same thing with the Chinese. I think the Chinese people are. I, I've been over there. They're great. They were very nice people. I enjoyed my time. And I'm sure the Russian people are the same way, too. They just both have crappy governments. You've got the kleptocracy in uh, in Russia and the CCP, which is terrible in China. So, uh, you know, it, but weakness only encourages aggression. Yeah. And we need to stand up and show that, uh, you know, there, there are certain values that we will back up. There are red lines that we will not allow to be crossed. Taiwan should be one, but also the Crimean Peninsula should have been another. And it wasn't. So I don't have a lot of faith that uh, that anything substantive will be done uh, to either country. And you see Putin reversing course on the Nord Stream or sorry, uh, Biden uh, going ahead with the, the Nord Stream two gas pipeline. I mean, that's going to put <laughs> it's going to put the Europeans at the mercy of the of the Russians, because Putin loves to do that to the Ukrainians to shut off the gas in the middle of the winter if there's something he wants. You know, blackmail. We're, we're talking to Brad Thor, one of the great thriller writers in the country. And you can hear he actually knows what he's talking about when he writes about the international scene. Uh, and his new book is Black Ice, just in time for August and for the beach read. I have to ask you this question. I, you were talking about the the female operative in this uh I, I have a problem when I, especially when I watch TV, I see these five foot actresses uh, who look like, you know, they would break if they actually stubbed their toe, knocking guys down, you know, like hurling themselves. And is it a problem writing female action heroes in a, in, in a way that is not going to tell women that they can take on men and get, you know, without getting hurt? Is that a problem? Yeah. 
No, for me, it's not a problem. Um, uh, in particular, the Soli Kolstad, the Norwegian spy that I write, comes out of, in my fictional world, she comes out of the real world, all-female special forces team that Norway fielded. So they have this Jaeger unit, uh, which is all women. And actually, she's with the unit for a little bit, and she quits because she got pissed off. She went to Afghanistan, and all they did was sit her down with Afghan women to try to gather intel. She didn't get to kick doors in and shoot bad guys in the face. <laughs> so she left and went over to the intel side of things with the Norwegian Intelligence Service. Um, listen, for a long time, we were trying to get a project off the ground with Rhonda Rousey, and I liked Rhonda a lot. She's just really cool, tough as hell, um, really fun to talk to and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, but yeah, when you see it, Hollywood's Hollywood, you know, they put they, nobody. The one thing that drives me the craziest, Drew, is that people right before something dangerous happens have to rack their weapon and get around in the chamber. No professional goes around with the chamber <laughs> empty. You know, so I, I it's like my wife's a doctor. She won't watch any of the medical shows because she just catches all the mistakes. And you got to kind of got to let it roll. But uh, yeah, I don't have a problem writing uh, action stuff. I try to make it realistic. You know, knowing female cops, knowing female members of the military, what their training's like, what they're able to do, and that kind of stuff. So I, I just that's that's the goal for me is I'm I'm entertaining you, but I am trying to keep it as close to reality as possible. So it isn't like comic book. I, I only got a minute left. To, uh, they have not made one of these books into a movie yet. Is that is that because of your politics? No, no, we've had plenty of options. It's yeah. just uh, for a town filled with so many beautiful people like Hollywood, I've kissed every frog. Uh, but we are at a major studio now. Okay. I got the first choice of director. I'm thrilled. I said I could pick anybody in Hollywood. They're like anybody in the world. And I picked the number one action director. I am so stoked. We're all doing our contracts now. And then the studio is going to release a press release. And I would love to come back on and talk to you about it because you've seen all the movies of the people. It's all A+. Plus. All eight really? people on this deal, which is astounding. It's worth having had so many options not come to fruition to be here right now because as they'll teach you in law school, sometimes the best deal is the deal you don't make. And all those were worth it to get to where I am now. That's great. That is very encouraging to hear. Brad Thor, the book, new book is Black Ice. You should definitely get it. You should get all of them. Read these books forever. It's great to see you, Brad. Let's uh, talk again soon. Thanks, Drew. Good seeing you. Thanks a lot. All right. We're coming up. Toward the end, the infernal darkness of the Clavenless Week looms ahead, but still there is this bright, luminescent, radiant portion of our show that remains, which we call the mailbag. Did this moment motivate you to push deeper into the cosmos? Hell yes. <laughs> yeah! I have no idea what that was. I, I don't want to know. It would only, it would probably, <laughs> what was it? Oh, <laughs> Bezos, okay. Mr. Cowboy, Cowboy Spaceman Bezos. All right. Uh, from John, I started listening to you several years ago when Ben Shapiro was on vacation. I just couldn't take listening to Knowles filling for him. Who could? I mean, come on, who could? Uh, came for your political commentary, stayed because of your keen insight into life. I have found your stories about your own personal struggles, uh, particularly moving. He says, I, oh, he talks about a, a moment in my life. It's in the, my memoir, The Great Good Thing, uh, when I was listening to a Mets game and I heard the catcher, Gary Carter, say, sometimes you just have to play in pain, uh, a piece of advice which really served me well at one of the most desperate periods of my life. And he says, I'm playing in pain myself these days, not because I suffer from depression, but because my wife does. She's the strongest person I know, the most amazing wife, mother, and my best friend. She's struggled with depression for years. And while she manages it well most of the time, it has been getting worse and can sometimes be debilitating. She sees a therapist, takes good care of herself. 
uh, does everything short of being medicated because she has an addictive personality and tries to stay away from narcotics whenever she can. Um, I'm always supportive and do what I can to help her, though it, her particularly rough times, but sometimes I feel so helpless. Um, thank you for sharing your wit and wisdom with the rest of us. The Clavenless weekends always seem so long. Well, for, first of all, let me just uh, correct some of that. Um, you know, a lot of times people talk about depression and they say, I have depression, uh, instead of saying, I am depressed. And those are actually two different things, okay? When, when bad things happen, you become depressed. And there are now foolish doctors who believe that the depression is caused by the chemicals in your body, and therefore they should give you chemicals to correct that uh, depression. And I disagree with that. If you get divorced uh, or if somebody you love gets sick and you get depressed and somebody drugs you, I feel they're actually depriving you of a, a, a legitimate and real reaction to a situation you're in. And that is incorrect. I think that is the uh, abuse of drugs. But there are also people, and your wife sounds like she might be one of them, who have depression, who have a dysfunction in their bodies uh, where the chemical for depression is being dispensed for no good reason. And that is just happening. And then drugs are sometimes indicated. And a good psychiatrist uh, who is not a, just a drug dealer, a good psychiatrist can tell the difference between those things. Antidepressants uh, are not addictive and they're not narcotic. Uh, and in the case of some, some kinds of depression, like bipolar, uh, they work really well and they're very important because otherwise it's just a, a bottomless pit. So I'm a little bit worried because you made that remark about uh, her being an addictive personality and so not wanting to take antidepressants. I'm a little bit concerned that she hasn't had a good diagnosis. And I think that that's where you should begin. I think that you should begin, especially if I, I can't see if you have. Yes, you say she's a wonderful mother. So you have kids and the kids deserve uh, their mother to be on point and to not be struggling with this because kids feel everything that their parents are going through. And so, you know, I, I would say, actually, that you should make sure that she gets to a psychiatrist and uh, who can diagnose her. Psychiatrists are medical doctors. They're MDs. I'm glad she's in therapy. I think that's a good thing. But it may be that, you know, and I'm not a doctor at all, so please don't take this from me, but this is something you should get from a doctor. It may be that, that some medication is necessary here because depression can be a bottomless pit and just suck, suck both you and her in, especially if you say she's taking care of herself and it's getting worse. There may not be a reason She's depressed except for having depression. So it's important. And now, you know, you know, I don't, anybody who listens to the show knows I don't like drugs. They're a last resort to me. But this is a case where you might want to look at this. In the meantime, you also want to take care of yourself. You want to make sure that you are not being completely subsumed by this, that you get away, that you have a place to go where you can have uh, a life outside of the depression. And I, I'm only getting this from your letter, so I'm, I don't want to go too far, but I just want to make sure that you are getting your wife properly diagnosed because it doesn't sound like you are to me. And the fact that you don't know, for instance, I mean, no reason you should know without getting this advice from a doctor, but the fact that you don't know that some of these antidepressant medications are not narcotic and not addictive uh, indicates that you haven't really looked into this as far as you should. And you should. It could be, this may not, she may not be depressed because of something. It may actually be a medical condition. That really does happen. All right. From Anonymous. I'm a 20-year-old male and got engaged to my fiance, who was also 20, about 10 months ago. 
We'd been dating for two years. I haven't had any serious relationships before her. Uh, She's Catholic, conservative, feels called to be a mom. She laughs at my jokes. She supports me almost to a fault in what I'm working on. My family loves her. About six months ago, I started having second thoughts, so much so that I told the priest a few months ago that I realized that I could not then say my vows at the altar, and we ended up postponing the marriage. I'm wondering at what point one is supposed to break off the relationship altogether. I can't seem to shake the feeling that I'm settling for less with her, but also I realize she hits so many boxes as to what I would want uh, in a wife, and I wouldn't want to sacrifice what is a blessing because of a feeling I can't shake. Um, I don't always feel that we should split, particularly when I'm with her. I like how things are, but fairly frequently I feel disingenuous. Uh, Do I tough it out and hope the ability to honestly commit comes back? Do I break up sooner rather than later? Should I just wait and see? Can we take a break or is that a coward's way out? Uh, Thanks for your help. I'm caught between an emotional rock and a lonely hard place. you have a condition which call, is called being a jerk. And I actually say this with compassion and love, but you are being a jerk. And you and you sound like a better man than that. And I, so I, I'm being straight with you. Uh, this is what you're doing is utterly, utterly wrong. Uh, you know, feminists tell us that we don't need to take care of women. They're lying. We need to take care of women. And one of the ways we take care of women is we do not string them along. Uh, women in their youth uh, are at the peak of their beauty and attractiveness. It is the time when they can best attract the kind of uh, man they want in their life. It is when they can easy, most, she wants to be a mom. It's when they can have children most easily. Uh, you do not use that time up while you sit around and with your thumb up your wazoo, uh, dithering over whether you like this girl enough or not. Let her go. Let her find somebody who deserves her because right now, in the state you are in now, the state of maturity you are in now, you do not. You you do not deserve her. You should let her go. To say we should go on a break, uh, is that a coward's way out? Uh, <laughs> I can't use on the air words strong enough to tell you how cowardly it is. You have blown it, uh, you know, but you need to grow up a little bit. And you're not going to take her time away from her uh, while you sit around and grow up. That is not the right thing to do. The, thing, the right thing to do is to let her go. Uh, let her have the life she wants, the children she wants with somebody who appreciates her as you don't seem to. And, and listen, pal, maybe you're right. Maybe, you know, you can find somebody else who is better, but the point now is you are not mature enough for this relationship, but you are mature enough to be a man and let her go. Uh, and that's, that is, is my advice. You could do the opposite and marry her, but you better realize that that's for life. There's no divorce after that. You better realize if you're going to do that, that's for life. But whatever you do, stop dithering, make your decision this very day and act on it because what you're doing now is it's, it's just utterly, utterly wrong. Um, see, there were a lot of things about uh, my superhero uh, uh, episode. Uh, people pointed out that I didn't get Superman, the Superman right. It was Superman 2, not Superman 3. I actually knew that, and I just was copying different things, and I put the wrong thing in. But it doesn't change anything I said. But I will address um, some of your superhero comments another day because I'm out of time. And in fact, that Clavenless weekend, I warned you. I warned you it was coming, the Clavenless week. Now it's here. And it is as dark as I said it would be, as infernal. It's it's funny because it's dark and yet it's filled with uh, consuming flames, the consuming fires of despair that you can already feel creeping up around you uh, to take you down um, and make it almost impossible for you to survive into the next uh, episode next week. However, however, if somehow you manage to crawl through the wreckage that is the Clavenless Week and make it back to our next show, I will be here once again with The Andrew Claven Show. I am Andrew Claven.
Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead audio mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. John Bickley here, editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire. Wake up every morning with our new show, Morning Wire. On today's episode, the Tokyo Olympics officially kick off. Hollywood attempts a box office comeback, and the new space race begins. Join us and get the facts first on the news you need to know with our show, Morning Wire. Morning Wire. 